Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time. Your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. In the early morning hours of October 10th, 1981, a young woman noticed a man checking her out at a bar in Louisville, Kentucky. When she left, he followed her outside abducted her at gunpoint, and brought her to nearby Iroquois Park, where he beat, robbed, and raped her. The victim described him as a white man driving a green car, about 5'11", over 200 pounds, with curly, dark brown hair and blue eyes. After a rape kit was performed, she helped create a composite sketch, which was circulated among the local bars. The following day, a man who closely resembled that sketch, Michael von Allman, walked into the very same bar from which the victim had been abducted. When Michael left, the bar patrons followed him home, tipped off the police, and his picture was shown to the victim in a photo array. One would think that an uncanny resemblance to the composite sketch and a positive ID from the victim would mean that the authorities got the right guy. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we have a case that at the heart of it is a mesmerizing web of unfortunate coincidence that then kind of loops back around to become fortunate. And hearing it might make you question or might reaffirm your belief system. Sometimes our guests are victims of a direct evil actor or systemic injustice, but this time in Louisville, Kentucky. Not to say there wasn't plenty of blame to go around, but well, you'll see what I mean in a bit. And, of course, we're talking about what happened to Michael von Allman. So, Mike, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for inviting me. And with Mike is Ted Schaus, a Louisville defense attorney, the former director, by the way, of the Kentucky Innocence Project, who Kentucky voters had the opportunity to elect to the bench as a circuit court judge in November 22. But they they missed, I'm going to say they blew that opportunity. And I'm going to say it right now, they would have been lucky to have him. So, Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, before we talk about this horrible crime and the odd and really unfortunate coincidence that led to your wrongful conviction, Mike, 
you had served in the military, which just feels to me like it makes it all seem worse somehow. But before we get into any of that, what was your life like growing up? Did you grow up in the city of Louisville? Absolutely, yeah. Louisville grew up close to Churchill Downs. So that was certainly bred into me as well. So very Louisville. My my father was a uh, firefighter for the Louisville Fire Department, working class, middle class. We lived in a neighborhood where the whole street was full of kids and, you know, went to school, climbed trees, played ball, and what I thought was a quite normal life. I mean, your story sounds so quintessentially American that I can actually smell apple pie while you're talking. And then, of course, you went into the Navy. And how was that experience? Well, the structure of of the military wasn't quite conducive to my personality. So, yeah, I was was in rebellion the whole time and uh, was glad to get out of there. And so you came home, and as I understand it, you um, celebrated your sort of emancipation, or you want to call it, from the military with um, sort of living it up, right? A lot of girlfriends, and we're smoking weed. No judgment here. I smoked enough of it when I was a kid to, to sink a ship and drinking, and et cetera. But you were young, and no judgment here. But then you were blindsided by this crazy situation. I mean, this crime was an awful crime, make no mistake about it. This is something that happened on October 10th of 1981 when a 22-year-old woman was abducted at gunpoint outside of a tavern in Louisville, Kentucky. She was taken to a nearby park called Iroquois Park where she was beaten, raped, and robbed. And the victim described her assailant as a guy about 5 foot, 11 inches tall, weighing over 200 pounds with blue eyes and curly dark brown hair. First of all, Mike, Did you fit the description of the perpetrator? They had a composite drawing that looked identical to me. Except for one very important feature. Mike has brown eyes, not blue. And this is not the first time we've heard of a situation where our guest looks very similar to the actual assailant. We've also heard of the actual assailant varying wildly from the victim's initial description and ultimate misidentification. So we've heard, and we've heard everything in between. But remember, our minds are not cameras. Some people like to think that they can remember things exactly. It's not the way the mind works, especially not with visual images. And Jennifer Thompson does the best job of anyone I know talking about this. Remember, she was called the perfect witness in a case where she herself was raped. And for the entire horrible ordeal, which lasted almost a half hour, she studied her assailant because she was determined that if she lived, She was going to make sure that she identified the person and that this would never happen to anyone else. But ultimately, she identified the wrong guy, Ronald Cotton, who looked almost identical to the actual assailant, as it turns out. DNA ultimately proved Ronald's actual innocence, but that wasn't the case here, and we'll get to that in a bit. However, a rape kit was performed, and then a few hours later, they worked with the victim on the composite sketch. She noticed this guy checking her out the whole night. So she really had a good picture of who this guy was. So she brought together this composite drawing that was almost identical to the guy and, unfortunately, almost identical to me. 
the police had circulated that picture to all the local bars that Saturday evening. And as it turned out, it was the Sunday evening, the day after they got this composite drawing. I went into the very same bar that it happened, not having a clue. As I'm sitting there ordering a cold beer, they're looking at this composite drawing and saying, wow, crazy SOB doesn't return to the scene of the crime. That mobilized everybody in that bar, and they followed me home in my blue Volkswagen. But the initial description in composite sketch said that the assailant was driving a green car. So again, we have a something here that should have been a big red flag and should have ended this before it began, because not only does Mike have brown eyes, not blue, but he has a blue car, not a green car. But I lived in this apartment complex, and as I pulled in to park, it was right next to my neighbor's green 68 Chevrolet. And they just added the two together saying, there's the green car, there's the guy. They called the police with an anonymous tip of two license plates that it could be. So first of all, what a terrible string of coincidences with you going to this particular bar at exactly the time that they had seen this composite sketch of an assailant that closely resembled you, except for the eye color, of course, but I don't think you can see that in a composite sketch, obviously, right? But what happens was this posse followed you home, and in another crazy twist of fate, you happened to pull in next to your neighbor's green car. Now, there was a partial plate number from the actual assailant's green car. The license plates were close enough, similar enough, that it might have been, well, it clearly was persuasive to a jury, but it really was the composite sketch that did it. As you can see, even today, Michael's got frizzy hair. At the time, he had a full head of curly hair, and so did the actual perpetrator. And it really was the composite sketch that was, that was the driving force behind this conviction. Again, what an awful coincidence. And it's about as remarkable as the coincidental turn of fate that proved your innocence. So did the victim identify you? When they had followed me home and and they got these two license numbers, from that information, they got my name and they took a photo of an old arrest I'd had for some misdemeanor, probably drunk in a public place, threw this photo into a photo pack. I think there was five, maybe six pictures, but mm-hmm. there was only one big curly-headed guy in that photo pack. So yeah. the victim was shown the photo pack, and when she got to the big curly-headed guy, she said, well, kind of looks like him, but not for certain. You know, mm-hmm. certainly... Mm-hmm. There wasn't any blue eyes that she could identify and say, yeah, that's him. But about a week, week and a half later, showed her the very same photo pack, and she made a positive identification. They had three felony warrants on me for rape, robbery, and sodomy. Right. And in the lead up to your arrest, since you worked a lot, the police often missed you during the day. Right? They would show up at your house daylight hours and you started hearing about this from your neighbors i had come home from work one day and the owner of that green car i met him at the mailbox and he asked me said hey what are the police looking for you for 
I said, police? What do you mean? He said, well, they've been, been by here a couple times this week knocking on your door. I said, well, I don't know, but thanks. I'll find out what's going on. I can't believe that the guy who owned the green car that was mistaken for the assailant's car, that that was the guy who told you about the cops coming by. But soon you did find out what was going on, and you learned that these were some really serious charges. So they had the partial plate number, the composite sketch, and the victim's misidentification. Now, from what I understand, you spoke to an attorney and tried to arrange for bond with your parents. As I'm on the phone with my mother, the police officers pulled up in front of my house, told my mother, Mom, I'll talk to you later. I ran outside to try to talk to them to give me a another hour to find get this bond situated and we'd get I'd be in we'd get this straightened out. And they looked at me like, yeah, give you an hour <laughs> getting this car. So you were arrested. Did you end up bonding out or did you end up awaiting trial from jail, as we so often hear? That was another miracle part of my story. One of the people that worked in the bond preparing system knew me went to high school with me and knew this was way out of character so i don't know what maneuvers she had available but she got this really low two thousand dollar bond set for me and it was posted right away so it was i was out on bond for about 16 months before i finally went to trial all right, so you were available to fight the case from the outside. This left you in a better position than most. Ted, did his lawyer take advantage of that? To the extent that there's blame in this case, there's plenty to go around. First of all, the police work. Second of all, the prosecution. But the defense counsel also needs to own some blame here. DNA was not available at the time. But what's important to remember is that this was an old-fashioned case that relied on old-fashioned work ethic. Mike had an alibi. He was at a barbecue, an outdoor party on the night that this occurred. I had four witnesses testifying where I was. And I think the owner of the green car testified that I never used this car. Those witnesses should have been adequately prepared to present a cogent defense for Mike. And they weren't. I've tried many, many cases in Kentucky and simply calling witnesses and putting it on the witness stand. That may seem like an appropriate way. Well, the witnesses were called, but if they're not properly prepared and if a cogent and complete defense is not prepared before the trial begins, you're not really putting on a defense. You're just throwing witnesses up there at that point. And that's not putting on a defense. Right. Unless there's a solid narrative created between the alibi witnesses and the corroborating physical evidence, a prosecutor can easily shred the credibility of that alibi simply by pointing out that these are Mike's friends or relatives who might be willing to lie. The jury, though, did hear that her assailant's eyes were blue while Mike's were brown, which I think should have meant more to everyone, including the judge, the prosecutor, and I hate to say it, but the victim, too. That physical evidence clearly corroborated the alibi, but the misidentification and the composite sketch that looked just like Mike, let's face it, they just outweighed everything. To be fair, in those days, the notion of misidentification was in its infancy. The notion that trauma and stress lead to misidentification was almost unheard of. And so the power of the composite sketch cannot be overstated. At this point, were you confident that people would see the truth? 
Certainly, I had a blind belief that the American justice system would sort out the truth in this, especially with everyone testifying to where I was and myself included. Take us to that moment, that which must have been the worst moment of your life, when they came in and got it exactly wrong. Total disbelief. Uh, my family in behind me, I had a sister who was eight and a half months pregnant in behind me, and she just began. She, when she started wailing, I just couldn't look back. And uh, they just carried me off and took me away, and, and uh, yeah, I couldn't look back at my family. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG Pro Bono Program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. I had been arrested plenty of times, but I never made it outside of the holding cell for the little misdemeanors that I had. So I never actually went beyond that, and so this was certainly a fearful time as far as my normal self going into where the mean boys are held up at and uh, trying to adjust to what the jailhouse environment was like uh, yeah very fearful I guess very confusing and difficult time and it led to a pretty quick transformation into Christianity, which was my mother's reason for all of this happening. So uh, it got me through about the first year of adjustment of jail and prison. But eventually I got to the point where I didn't believe God was really doing this and uh, got back to my old character and adjusting to uh, prison life. You found religion and lost religion through this experience, it sounds like. Uh, huh? uh, redefined it for sure, yes. Yeah, we hear stories of, of you know men and women who've gone through similar experience to yours and they've gone you know, one way or the other. I haven't actually heard the full circle uh, version of that, but uh, it's interesting to hear you tell it. And, and I going to have to say it's understandable. I mean, who, who knows how anyone would react going through this most incredibly traumatic experience that you were subjected to. So sentenced to 30 years, you're um, at that point, how old were you? I was 25. Right. So they're sentencing you to spend more time in prison by a significant margin than you had actually been alive on this planet. Yes. So I get to prison, and of course, right away, I'm trying to prove my innocence. 
and start demanding some kind of lie detection, whatever method that they could come up with. My course, my lawyer is doing the direct appeal, and the direct appeal was affirmed fairly quickly. So the next move was back to our trial court with the 1142 motion, and in an effort to arm myself as best as I could, I demanded from my new attorney, get me these polygraph tests and let's get something in front of this judge before we go for this 1142. So he finally hires a polygraph operator on his own, a police officer. As I passed this test, it wasn't long afterwards that that same officer was indicted for an arson charge over his restaurant. So that kind of nullified anything this guy had to say about anything. It's like you were on a downward spiral in a sea of legal quicksand driven by a string of unfortunate coincidences. So that blew up that effort and the timing with that appeal. So back to getting another polygraph test. So as we're working to get this done, up jumps another possible suspect. Not a big curly-headed guy, but a big wavy-headed guy. And he had a string of sexual assaults that wasn't identical, didn't match up to the M.O., but he was from the neighborhood and everybody focused on him as the possible actual perpetrator. And I was hopeful that he was going to confess to the crime I was accused of. And then my attorney was finally able to get a polygraph set up with the Louisville Police Department, working with the Commonwealth Attorney's Office. And when I passed that polygraph test, the police reopened my case with that other suspect that I had just mentioned with him in mind. But unfortunately, even though this serial rapist did confess to other crimes, he never actually confessed to crime for which Mike served 11 years. Now, after losing in court twice and this reinvestigation running dry, you pivoted to petitioning the parole board for early consideration. And maybe that reopening of your case and a fresh look had something to do with your being considered for early parole. The consideration of early parole is almost unheard of in Kentucky. And so when Michael was granted early consideration, you know, three times before he eventually got parole, that's that's almost unheard of in Kentucky. Yeah, it sounds like there were probably some whispers in the halls of power there. There were some recognition that this was a miscarriage. But even with that potential recognition, Michael was denied and deferred three times, which is how he did 11 long years. And it seemed like every time he was up for parole, some other parolee would be in the news for having committed some sort of other heinous crime, even though we know that's a tiny fraction of the people who come home. Those are the ones that make news. But this meant that any willingness of the parole board to give Michael the benefit of the doubt would just shrivel up. They'd give you some BS about you needing to take some courses, AA, sex offender, rehab, et cetera, even though there was so much doubt in your case. And you did pursue those avenues as well. Now, before you were eventually paroled, there were two other avenues or storylines that were building steam. As DNA testing evolved, you began to seek out the biological materials in your case. And then there was a girl from your neighborhood who ended up being instrumental in your freedom. Yeah, and in the neighborhood that I grew up in 
was a girl that lived down the street. As we got to high school, she just kind of disappeared, and we had heard that she was off with some crazy crowds. So I get convicted, and my mother comes down there to visit me when she is coming down there to visit somebody else in prison as well. But she knows my mother really well, and she says, she looks up and sees her and says, Wow, what are you doing here? And my mother says, Well, I'm seeing Mike. Mike's here for a rape charge. What are you doing here? She said, Well, I'm here seeing an old friend. Ten years goes by, and the guy that she had come to visit that time, he's now getting ready to get out on parole. And during this 10 years, I have become really good friends with this guy. He sends a letter out to, to this girl. You know, he's looking for somebody to hook up with when he gets out. So he writes this letter and she writes him back. So, though, yeah, you can call me when you get out. And, and oh, by the way, any chance you know a guy named Mike Von Allman? I believe my ex is the one who committed his crime. Well, like I say, we had been good friends. This guy had been listening to me whine about my innocence for 10 years now. When he got this letter, it all made sense to him, and he brought it straight to me and said, here, read this. And as I'm reading it, and I get to that point, Mike Von Allman, I says, what the guy look like? And the guy says, big curly-headed guy. And then I go to reading back. I said, well, where's he at? I, he says, he's dead killed in a car wreck so your big break still came with a big uphill battle there you were you must have felt like you'd been hit by lightning but this evidence still needed to be developed so for now your best bet was still the parole board and you had been taking classes building up a positive appearance on paper for these people who usually demanded a mission of guilt which you were not fitting to give them and finally the day came in 1994 that last parole hearing, I mean, it's etched in my memory forever. I wasn't going to go up there and talk to them any kind of way about guilt or innocence. I just wanted to focus on what I had done in those 11 years, uh, the sex offense class and all that kind of stuff. I completed my AA degree. I went in with my little spiel and they said, oh, that's pretty good, pretty impressive. But let's hear about the story again. We want to hear it one more time. Are you guilty? And I just shrunk. I felt it was going to be the end of it. I thought I was going to get a serve out on my sentence from there. But I just shrunk and said, no, man, I never saw that girl before in my life. I don't know her. And uh, they said, okay, step out. And uh, I come back in and they said, we're going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Do not come back in front of us. We won't be as nice the next time. Here's your shot, buddy. I've been a criminal defense attorney for 23 years. I was the directing attorney of the Kentucky Innocence Project for two of those years. What you just heard is one of the gutsiest moves I've ever heard a criminal defendant make. Mike stuck to his guns. He stuck to the truth. He told those people the truth. He took an incredible risk. Might have been easier to say what they wanted to hear and increase his chances of being released from prison, but he stuck to his truth. He stuck to the truth. That is an incredibly gutsy move. It is. It really is. And Michael can count himself among some rarefied company that we've had on the show. 
courageous men and women who have done a similar thing when they could have done, and he could have done the practical thing, it would seem like it anyway, and maybe seen a clear path to freedom, but he didn't and still was rewarded. So now he's been paroled, right? But his name was not cleared yet. Mike's case was hanging in this weird limbo at this time. Of course, he was released for prison. And at that point, everyone said, oh, well, no harm, no foul. This was, of course, after Mike had spent 11 years in prison for a crime he didn't commit. Yeah, so this still needed to be made right. So you had already pursued DNA testing and were told that the evidence didn't exist. But who knows? They may have just been stonewalling you, as we've seen time and again on this program, where the evidence does exist, but they just refuse to hand it over. I made every move I could possibly make trying to find this biological evidence about a year later or so i you know i I just gave up on trying to prove my innocence i was out get busy living don't worry about the innocence you know this freedom thing is pretty damn nice so just do whatever you got to do to stay with that and i did i was still Mike Von Allman, the very same guy that they locked up. I mean, that's an absolutely remarkable way to make peace with a terrible injustice. But that's not the end of the story. How did Ted end up getting involved? Finally, 16 years goes by. I make the coffee, flop the newspaper down on the kitchen table, and there right on the front page was Ted and this grant money to investigate wrongful convictions. And... I read the, that's still emotional too. I read that story. And the very first day I was so full of emotion, I couldn't call. But the second day I mustered up enough fortitude that I called down to Ted's office and I said, hey, that happened to me in the 80s. And he said, well, you're the person we're looking for. And I said, well, yeah. My name's Mike Von Allman. Let's let's get going. I remember that phone call vividly. I had just been hired as the directing attorney of the Innocence Project to oversee this grant from the United States Department of Justice to do research on a narrow group of sex offenses. And the thinking of the grant was that DNA would be how we would solve these cases. As part of that effort, I did a sort of a public relations outreach. There were articles in the newspaper. I went on the radio. I went on TV trying to reach people. And I remember Mike's phone call very well. And retired Louisville Police Lieutenant Gary Simpkins, who was my investigator at the time, I sent him out to talk to Mike. And Gary was, and still is, a cop's cop. He is a Vietnam veteran, a veteran of, I believe, 25 years on the Louisville Police Department and did everything you can do in those 25 years, from patrol officer to homicide detective. I believe Gary's last job was as what we call the public integrity unit. Most people would call that internal affairs. So Gary came after interviewing Mike and said, I think this is a legitimate case. I went to the then serving Commonwealth attorney and said, we've received this grant. We'd like to see if there's any DNA evidence available. The then serving Commonwealth attorney said, I have no interest in seeing an innocent person wrongfully convicted, do it. This is where it gets interesting. I then went to see a judge to see about tracking down the DNA evidence. And the judge who I went to see said about this case, who was the defense lawyer? And when I told him the defense lawyer's name, he then said, who was the judge? And I told him the judge's name. Who was the prosecutor? 
And I told him the prosecutor's name. And this judge went, oh, what? Oh, God. So what we have here is a case that was a perfect storm. I like to say that for criminal cases to work properly, there are three gears that have to turn, prosecution, defense, and the judge. One of those gears can be wildly out of whack and the system can still work. But if two or all three of those gears are out of whack, the system will not work. So what we had here is this perfect storm of a bad identification, a bad police sketch, bad defense work, bad prosecution, and bad judging all come together. So now you have the Herculean task of not providing reasonable doubt, but actually proving his actual innocence. The power dynamic is completely flipped in post-conviction. And you've requested every document under the sun, as well as physical evidence. And it turned out in this case that they were not stonewalling Mike after all, but rather that the biological evidence had been destroyed. There was no DNA evidence in this case. So we had to do it the old fashioned way and persuade the court that an injustice had occurred here without the benefit of DNA evidence. And that brings us back to this woman from Mike's neighborhood who had recognized Mike's mother in the visiting room at prison and had been visiting a friend of Mike's on the inside. This woman had previously been married to this man that she believed had committed the crime for which Mike served 11 years. Now she was available to be interviewed by your investigator, Gary Simpkins, even though her ex-husband was not available as he had died in a car crash back in 1983. He wasn't just killed in a car crash. He was killed while participating in a high-speed chase, driving the green car with the partial license plate that was given to the police about Mike's case. The Louisville and Shively Police Departments were chasing him, and we were able to find the police reports from the car crash. So because of the circumstances of the wreck, the police took a ton of photos of that wreck. The car matched the descriptions, the license plate, his physical description, and the fact that he had committed a signature sexual assault, taking the victim of this other case to the same location in Iroquois Park, saying the same things to the victim in that case, and doing the same things in that case. I mean, the signature was identical in that offense as the one that Mike was wrongfully convicted of. Wait, so what color were this guy's eyes? Blue. Blue, yeah. Yes. That girl that grew up down the street from me, and it was his death that freed her and allowed her to go see this other guy and make for this chance meeting at the prison with my mother. Had he still been alive, yeah, that chance meeting never would have occurred and we'd still been looking for him. We'll be right back after this. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids. 
but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. The interviews with the woman from the neighborhood who was also a victim of the real perpetrator in that signature crime, her interview was critical. The way in which she recounted what he had done to her, what his lifestyle was like at the time, the car, the license plate, the composite, all of that. But it was also given a great deal of credibility, I want to point out, by our investigator, who, as I say, was a retired Louisville Police Department lieutenant who had worked alongside some of the officers who investigated Mike's case and who knew the system intimately, okay? And so he was able to bring that experience to bear. I also want to point out how unusual it is for a retired police lieutenant to go to work for the Kentucky Innocence Project, okay? Had Gary come to me early in this case and said, I think it's a bum steer. I don't think there's anything here. That might have been the end of it. That's not what happened. Gary came to me and said, I want you to meet this guy. I want you to meet this woman. I want you to take a look at this. I trusted him. I trusted his judgment. I trusted his judgment as an investigator. This was sort of old-fashioned shoe leather detective work and old-fashioned shoe leather lawyer work. I remember the day I went to Mike's house and sat down in his kitchen and met him for the first time and was compelled. We met the woman from the neighborhood who gave us an affidavit, a detailed sworn statement, um, and we were able to put all the pieces together to say, this is not right. This man did not do this, and we know who did. So then we took that to court. There's a procedure. It's sort of a, a safety valve in the law that allows for, you know, break glass and turn the knob here. And so that's how we went to court. The court vacated his sentence, and then the prosecutors chose not to pursue the prosecution any further. And the man's name was Ronald Tackett. Not only had he victimized these young women in 1978 and 1981 in very much the same way, but also his own wife. And who knows how many other women that just never spoke up. But luckily, for so many others, he met his demise in 1983 before wrecking any more havoc while Michael rotted in prison for 11 years. 11 long years. And then serving how many years on parole after? Uh, served 16 years on parole. Probably about one year's worth of investigating by Ted and Gary. I met them at about 15 years on parole. In 16 years, I, I was exonerated. July 15th was the final day. So what was that like? Can you take us there? 
Well, it was really a, a huge surprise because up until that point, I was believing that they were going to retry me and that on this particular day, I was just going in to get another court date. So I wore my blue jeans and, and t-shirt down there because I was just going to sneak out and go back to work right away. So uh, Ted starts shuffling around and uh, he whispered, I think it's over or something. You know, really, Ted, I got to say that's that's a blank moment right in there. Just just to hear that it's going to be dismissed and over. It was just unbelievable moment that I've been asked what it felt like and I couldn't describe it. The only way I could, I'm going to show it to you now. This is the only way I can describe it, if y'all can see that. And for our listening audience, since we record on a platform that's kind of like Zoom, I can see Mike as we record this, and he's showing us a photo on the wall right behind him. And it's that iconic photo of the great Muhammad Ali, a Louisville native, by the way, where Muhammad is standing over the body of Sonny Liston, who he's just knocked down in the ring. You've probably seen the photo yourself. It's one of the greatest sports images in history. That's what it felt like and does every day. Like I say, I was exp- I was ready to go back to work, but uh, no, I took off the rest of the day. Then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you didn't. I mean, it must have been a glorious day, even better than the day of your parole, I'd imagine. Absolutely. Finally getting it off your back. Finally, the truth being understood by the world. Still, the day I was let out on parole, it, it, they're two different events. But man, they write way, way up there. I can only begin to imagine. And from what I understand, you two and your families really have like an insane connection from the past that you only discovered on that fateful day. Is that right? We had a catastrophic tornado here in 1974. It did a tremendous amount of damage to the city. And it wasn't until I was finished representing Michael that I realized or we discovered that his father had actually done repair work on my parents' house in 1974 when his dad, who was a firefighter, was also doing construction as a side gig. And Michael's dad had done work on the house I grew up in in 1974, and we would not meet each other for 25 years later. And we discovered that in the courtroom, when the court vacated Michael's conviction, I turned around and his dad gave me a hug and said, you look just like your dad. And I said, how would you know that? And he said, because I did work on your house when you were a kid after the tornado. Well, that really puts a nice exclamation point on what was otherwise a great day anyway. A great day that we'd hope never would have had to come to pass as it was brought on by the awful flaws in the criminal legal system and the flawed human beings who run it, which has brought you, Michael, to a cause that is so near and dear to me, abolishing the death penalty. I've become a board member of the coalition to abolish the death penalty. We had some momentum going on that issue. We started drawing some national attention and we got some national grants to work on this issue. We have set a goal of abolishing the death penalty in Kentucky by the year 2025. KCADP.org 
is the Coalition to Abolish the Death Penalty in Kentucky. All right. Well, we're going to have that site linked in the bio along with other action steps. And that brings us to, I always call it my favorite part of the show. Let's face it, it's the best part of the show. <laughs> it's, it's the part called Closing Arguments. And it's the part where, as our listeners know, I turn my microphone off, kick back in my chair with my headphones on, close my eyes, and just listen to anything else that you guys have to say. So, Ted, why don't you start it off, and then Michael, take us out into the sunset. Mike, you've become a friend, a real friend. You're why I became a lawyer. The opportunity to represent you, the opportunity to fight for you, the opportunity to prove your innocence. Thanks a lot. It was a life changer. And I know it was for you as well, but just as a lawyer, it's just, and we've known each other now for what, 15 years, 12 years? I think so. Yeah. It's getting up already. Yeah. You came to the visitation when my dad died and I came to the visitation when your dad died. You're my friend, Mike. Yeah. I love you. You stop that. <laughs> you, you stop it. <laughs> You're going too far. All uh, right. I love you too, man. My closing thing would be, I guess, that all of this is a uh, human endeavor and there are going to be mistakes made. Allow for mistakes to be corrected. Work some kind of way into the system that mistakes can be corrected and, as Jesus may say, cast the first stone. If you're flawless and you think everything else is flawless, cast the first stone. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. 
The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.